Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everybody to episode 32 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hi, good. I'm looking forward to wrapping up this case and talking about something that a lot of people have asked us to cover. So I'm nervous and yeah. looking forward to doing it justice, hopefully. Yeah, we've had a few requests on this one. So, um, but you know, as we said last week, we had to sort of lay that groundwork to get to this point. There's yep. a whole lot to cover today, that's for sure. There so. is. We've got some more uh, Patreon shout-outs this week. We do. Thank you and welcome to Rowan Boardman-Beals, Tanya Maudsley, Ava Manning and Smolks. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Also, I wanted to shout-out to Chris Hardy, too, who upped his pledge this week. So, thank you, Chris. Thank you. Today, we're talking about the Silk Miller police murders. But hold up, if you've clicked on this episode out of interest, this is technically part two. So, do yourself a favour hit pause and go back and listen to last week's episode on Bandali Debs. You don't have to, but you're going to miss a whole lot if you don't. We're not going to recap. We're going to launch straight into things, picking up from where we finished last week at the final Hamada armed robbery. Eighteenth of July, nineteen ninety-eight, the Green Papaya Restaurant, Surrey Hills, Victoria. A dozen staff were closing up for the night in the safe suburban upper-class neighbourhood in Melbourne's east. Just as the restaurant owner Leon Dong had his staff clear the last plate of devoured lemon chicken from the tables, a pair of masked armed robbers stormed into the venue. The older of the two bandits, wearing a Richard Nixon mask, bellowed orders while waving a Smith & Wesson revolver around. The younger bandit, wearing a Ronald Reagan mask, bound the staff in the middle of the restaurant with filament tape. Dissatisfied with the take, the older Nixon snarled at Leon, the owner. This all you fucking got? Need to raise your prices, mate. The pair rifled through some more contents and swiped jewellery from some of their bound victims, stopping momentarily to yell at the Chinese kitchen hand and chef speaking in their native tongue. 
Shut up, speak fucking English, Nixon barked. The pair seemed to revel in the fear they were striking into the hearts of their victims, as all 12 staff lay there terrified, not knowing what was going to happen next. As Reagan scooped up their loot and wished the bound victims a nice day, the older Nixon, with his paunchy belly and white Velcro tab runners, turned back and said, Tell the coppers Lucifer was here. The Car Thief Jeffrey Dean was a 35-year-old run-of-the-mill car thief. The former labourer now pinched cars, whatever caught his eye, whatever he could get his hands on. Late Saturday night on the 15th of August 1998, Jeffrey had left his home in Frankston, having said goodnight to his partner and young son, and headed to work. His definition of work, anyway, boosting cars wasn't exactly a legal profession requiring a university degree. Jeffrey found himself driving his Honda Civic down Warrigal Road in Moorabbin when he spotted a few cars on the roadside that fit his aforementioned definition of work. These cars were parked outside the Silky Emperor restaurant. At around 11.30, as the searing pink and blue neon signs of the Silky Emperor buzzed in the night sky, Jeffrey cased the roadside cars but was put off by some diners having a casual post in a chat on the curb. Going with his gut, this place seemed like it had the right kind of vibes for what he was looking for. Jeffrey passed the diners and instead turned into the underground car park of the Silky Emperor. The steep downward ramp and dark entrance filled the car thief with hope, perfect conditions for his work. But his mood changed when he was again put off by the sight of a green VS Holden Commodore. It was the plates that threw Jeffrey. O-C-V were the first three letters. He knew that police had used unmarked cars with O-C-V on the plates before. The slinking high beams of Jeffrey's Honda Civic highlighted the faces of two men inside the VS. The pair stared at Jeffrey in the eye, both of them, mid-thirties, one with a moustache. Jeffrey freaked on the inside, but did a quiet U-turn and went back up the ramp out onto Warrigal Road, before turning left down Cochrane's Road. He looked back and the Holden was giving chase. Jeffrey put his foot down and pulled a swift U-turn, flying over the embankment and medium strip, before flooring it back towards Warrigal Road. The car he was in was hot. He had to get away. The Commodore followed, pulled a sharp U-turn as well and pursued Jeffrey. But the thief was adept, slick and speedy in his stolen Civic. He made his way clear, back down Nepean Highway to his house in Frankston, where he staggered inside, short on breath. I think the coppers just chased me, he said to his partner, Christy. What do you mean you think? she asked in reply. Well, I seen no blue lights, but I seen their faces. And to me, I'm pretty sure it was the coppers. Jeffrey Dean had indeed seen two coppers, and successfully outrun them. But Jeffrey wasn't their intended target that evening anyway. Silk and Miller Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller returned to the dark basement car park of the Silky Emperor restaurant, 
having lost the Honda Civic and mistakenly pulled over a Ford Telstar thereafter. I reckon he was a pro, mate. Did you see him floor it? And it couldn't have been Hamada anyway. Only one guy in the car. Silken Miller sat in their VS Commodore once again, chatting and listening to the post-match commentary on the radio after Silk's beloved Hawks had beaten the newly merged Brisbane Lions in a game of AFL. The pair were two of approximately 60 Victorian police officers on stakeout duties that night throughout Melbourne's outer east and southeastern suburbs. They were on an undercover sting to try and nab the perpetrators of the recent Hamada robberies. A pair of bandits, one older, one younger, master and apprentice, who'd been knocking over soft targets like the Silky Emperor for the past 12 months or more. Gary Silk was 34 and had been in the police force for 13 years, most of that spent in the knockabout St Kilda precinct. And that was the kind of guy Gary Silk was, an AFL-loving, knockabout, staunch guy. He was single, loved a good time, played hard but worked even harder. Gary had a real passion for police work and that was evident in his everyday duties and on this night. After their initial target for the evening's stakeout duties, the Korean barbecue in East Bentley, had closed up early after a quiet night, Gary volunteered the pair to head down to the Silky Emperor to help out follow officers Detective Senior Constable Sharon and Senior Constable Bendike. The Silky Emperor posed a bit of a nightmare for one surveillance team alone, due to the underground car park and obstructed observations for teams outside on the street. So Bendike and Sharon were happy to have the help when Silk and Miller arrived, The pair had been unable to split prior to that due to operational two-up orders and this left them with a blind spot. Now they had it covered. Around this time, another pair of officers, Sergeant David Pratt and Senior Constable Ian Gray, also arrived and offered to trade places with Silk and Miller so Rod could go home and spend the remainder of the night with his wife Carmel and seven-week-old son James. But Rod wasn't a man to shirk at his duties and alongside the staunch Sergeant Silk, The pair said thanks, but no thanks. They'd been handed the job and they'd see it out, dull as it might have been looking at this point. So the task force head, Mark Butterworth, gave Pratt and Gray the green light to go mobile and patrol the district, doing drive-bys of some of the other identified potential soft targets that didn't have static surveillance. Sharon and Bendike remained across the street at BBC Hardware, while Silk and Miller maintained their position within the underground car park. Rodney Miller was a year older than Gary Silk, but had been a police officer for about half the time, seven years or thereabouts. He had previously served in the Defence Force prior to this. Miller was known as a friendly and reliable officer, a tall man with an infectious laugh. He was head over heels for his young son James, loved being a dad. So this was tough for him, the nights away from his wife and son. Just after midnight another car pulled into the Silky Emperor Restaurant car park. From the street, Sharon and Bendike thought it looked like the Honda Civic from earlier, and they perhaps wondered why this guy was back for more. But it wasn't Jeffrey Dean's stolen Honda Civic. This was a dark blue Hyundai hatchback. The Hyundai drove down the ramp into the dark basement, and like the Honda from earlier, circled around the Horseshoe car park, momentarily lighting up Silk and Miller and their Commodore as it did, before ascending back up the ramp and out onto Warrigal Road. It wasn't speeding off like the Honda, but it wasn't crawling along either. Silk and Miller, wondering why it was like Punt Road in this dinky little underground car park at midnight, 
fire up their Commodore and head out onto Warrigal Road behind the Hyundai and follow it as it turns left onto Cochrane's Road. Across the road, Bendike and Cheren watch on as their counterparts rounded the corner and they saw the flickering of the unmarked Commodore's blue dome light. The pair left, catching the lights at the corner near Caltex. After staring at a billboard of Kevin Sheedy reading, You're always in hot water with Aquamax for what seemed like an eternity, Sharon and Ben Dyke rounded the corner onto Cochrane's Road. About 100 metres down, they saw Silk and Miller had pulled over the Hyundai. The scene bathed in a wash of flickering blue light as Sharon and Ben Dyke passed. The pair contemplated pulling over, putting their own light on, but ultimately decided not to upon passing the scene. Silk was out of the car and conversing with the driver of the Hyundai, who was also standing out of the car. The pair were in the V of the Hyundai's door and body, and Miller was also out of the car at the rear of the Hyundai making some notes. Bendike and Sharon both described the male driver of the Hyundai a little differently, Sharon probably having a better view as Bendike was driving. An inclusive description of the guy was that he was approximately 30, with some kind of heritage, possibly Italian, 188 centimetres, medium build, dark eyes, straight black shoulder-length hair, a drawn, druggy look, unshaven and heavy, wearing a chequered flannelette shirt, jeans or trackies and white runners. The man, Silk and Miller all appeared relaxed and at ease. Neither Sharon or Ben Dyke observed another person on scene or in the Hyundai. They ultimately made the decision to not compromise the integrity of the operation that was still ongoing by maintaining their cover. They continued down Cochrane's Road and pulled into nearby Capella Crescent, some 150 metres down the road. With both Silk and Miller seemingly at ease and a laid-back-looking Mediterranean guy having a chat, Sharon and Ben Dyke were not concerned at all with what they'd passed. The spot near the carpet court in Capella Crescent was also a perfect spot to sit off for a potential intercept, though it seemed unlikely that would be needed. Sharon lit up a cigarette, blew a puff of smoke into the air and ashed on the ground when the pair heard the gunshots pierce the midnight silence. Back at the scene, Miller drew his service weapon and opened fire at the second man, the passenger they hadn't seen, who'd just gunned down his partner. He missed and the bullet lodged in the door of a nearby mechanics workshop. The shooter then fled after misfiring with his old revolver, leaving Gary Silk on the ground, a bullet wound in his chest. Meanwhile, the driver of the Hyundai, the guy wearing the flannelette, dove into the car and reached for his 357 Magnum revolver, a very powerful handgun. He fired through the rear windscreen, hitting Miller and shattering the glass. Miller ducked behind the Hyundai and fired back, missing and lodging a bullet in the car body. Hit just beneath the left armpit, Miller fled towards Warrigal Road, his partner mortally wounded on the ground nearby, and he went to look for help. The man in the flannel fired again, missing Miller and hitting a nearby for sale sign. As the fleeing and wounded officer disappeared from view, the man walked over to Gary Silk, who lay prone and motionless on the ground. The man then shot Silk once in the hip and once in the head, killing him instantly in a cold-blooded execution. He looked around, saw no one, and at some point his co-attacker returned to the car and they took off. Sharon and Ben Dyke had no more than 30 seconds after hearing the first gunshot to consider what was happening. They radioed through that shots had been fired, considered getting their flak jackets from the boot of the vehicle, 
before the screeching tyres of the Hyundai filled the deafening silence post-gunshots. Sharon and Ben Dyke unholstered their weapons as the Hyundai came their way, initially thinking a firefight might be on. However, the vehicle passed and sped off. So they were left with the decision here to either give chase or go back to the scene and check out their fellow officers. Ultimately, the wheels of justice and probably shock won out and the pair decided the welfare of their co-members was more important than chasing the Hyundai. Aside from the make of the vehicle and the description of the driver they briefly passed, they didn't get the rego plates in such a brief passing encounter. As they returned to the scene down Cochrane's Road, the pulsing blue dome light was still on, but they couldn't see anyone. The pair alighted their vehicle and searched the area, guns drawn, unsure if the killers were still nearby. They weren't sure if it was the driver of the Hyundai who'd fired the shots or if it was their counterparts. Indeed, they'd only seen one occupant in the Hyundai when it went past. But soon, Ben Dyke found Gary Silk lying on the ground nearby, a significant amount of blood pooling around his head. Sharon knew immediately who it was from the build and the clothing. Silk's service weapon was still holstered. He hadn't got a shot off. Ben Dyke checked his pulse and determined that he was dead. In no time, police units from the surrounding area had swarmed the scene, both from the Hamada stakeouts and uniformed officers. They patrolled the area, searching for the killer or killers, and cordoned off the scene on Cochrane's. Police eventually called off the manual search and brought the canines in to track the scent of the perpetrators once Rod Miller had been located. In a garden bed outside the Silky Emperor, onlookers from inside the restaurant watched on at who they thought was a mad gunman writhing around in the bushes. But this was in fact Rod Miller. Senior Constable Colin Clark and Bradley Gardner from Cheltenham were putting witches' hats out at the corner of Cochrane's and Warrigal Road when they heard Miller's cry for help and went over to him. After identifying Miller as the missing officer, the officers attempted to comfort him as he lay in pain, ranting deliriously in a staccato fashion between intensely laboured breaths. Clark saw that he'd been shot beneath his clothing under the left armpit and hip, thinking it was two shots, but in fact it was one that had ripped through Miller's body, an entry and exit wound. I'm fucked, I can't breathe. Get me some help? Silky's dead. Miller said. Clark and Gardner got the brief description from Miller that there were two offenders, one on foot, a dark Hyundai, six foot, with a checkered shirt. Others arrived on scene promptly, including the ambulance, and Miller was taken away, desperately clinging for life, saying that he didn't want to die. Officer Lou Girardi comforted Rod as he was taken away, putting his jacket around him and speaking positively. Rod went in and out of consciousness. His skin was cold and clammy. Gardner accompanied Miller in the ambulance with a notepad, hoping for any useful information, but none would come. Paramedics and hospital staff fought diligently to save Rod Miller, but the damage caused by the bullet wound had torn through the back of his stomach, caused severe damage to his liver, bowel and pancreas. The blood loss couldn't be replenished and emergency surgery proved futile. Before 5am that morning, Senior Constable Rodney Miller was declared dead and the news passed over the police radio network. No one was more upset than Carmel Miller, who waited helplessly in the waiting room at the Monash Medical Centre when her husband and father of her seven-week-old baby boy was pronounced dead.
And Chloe, before we get to this next part of the story, being the investigation into the murders, I wanted to take some time to talk about Rod Miller and Gary Silk, because while it's always important to humanise and respect victims, it's also important to not just label them victims and cover off a few dot points about their personalities. These guys were human beings with personalities that impacted many lives in a very positive way, and their loss did the same, caused a lot of pain and grief for many, many people. And let's not forget, it's often commented how big a deal was made after their deaths because they were cops, big state funerals, etc. But don't forget these were two guys who dedicated their days, their careers, to helping the rest of us, to protecting the rest of us. They were out on this very night trying to catch a pair of bandits who'd struck fear into the souls of dozens, if not hundreds of people over the past decade or so, if you connect both the Hamada and Pigout robberies from last episode. And as we covered at the end of that episode, some of these people were injured not just psychologically, but physically too, with lasting impacts. So to me, it was the very definition of nobility, honour and selflessness, as much as any human can anyway, that Gary Silk and Rob Miller were displaying on this tragic night when they were both gunned down. Rodney Miller. Rod Miller had only been back at work for a week since the birth of his son, James. As we said, he was over the moon about being a dad, and his wife Carmel knew it. In fact, just that morning, Rod had encouraged Carmel to take some me time for herself while he and James hung out, and Rod educated him about all the things politics, life, and of course, the Richmond Football Club. Rod was a big, charismatic, smiling man with a big heart and fiercely loyal to those close to him. He didn't suffer fools, though. Rod knew where to invest his time and effort in relationships, and Carmel would later say that the friends he made throughout his life were the ones he had when he died. A quiet and reserved man day to day, he didn't shovel shit when push came to shove. Rod was a force to be reckoned with. You don't serve in the Defence Force knock back an invitation from the SAS to fulfil your childhood ambition of becoming a Victorian police officer unless you've got some backbone. And Rod had that. Indeed, he just got his letter in the week prior offering to sit the detective's exam. While Rod was a laid-back guy who didn't like to dress up, he preferred to hang around in his trackies and bluntstones than put on a show, he'd had a tough childhood in some respects. His father Jim died when Rod was just one from a heart attack. A time later, his mother Marie met Eric Miller, who had two boys of his own, so Rod got a pair of much longed for siblings. Rod adored his mum Marie and she adored him. They were very close. But tragically, Marie was taken too young, when Rod was 19 from cancer, so it was an adverse youth at times for Rod Miller. But things changed when his persistence in proposing to Carmel paid off and the pair eventually married. They had young James, or Jimmy as Rod called him, much to Carmel's dismay. She preferred James. But James grew very much into a Jimmy, it was said. He had a high-spirited personality and his dad loved him very much. When Carmel Miller left Monash Medical on the night of her husband's passing, she noticed two particularly bright stars in the sky. It was like Rod and Gary were looking down on them. She later had one of the stars, Iota Piscium, renamed Rodney James Miller. One time, when he was a bit older, her boy James said, Mummy, I see Roddy up there. He protects us while we sleep, doesn't he? Gary Silk. Gary Silk was a man's man. As we said, he loved his hawks, loved an ouzo and coke. 
He had a tribe of loyal mates, many colleagues he'd worked with and lived with over the years. Nothing speaks more to a man's character and how well-loved he was than that of the tale of two of his colleagues hearing of his murder while on holidays in Turkey. The pair completely abandoned plans and returned to Australia for his funeral, one of which made it back just in time to be a pallbearer. Gary made a mark on many lives and was sorely missed. He was an easygoing bloke, loved a beer, and you could tell how bad his hangover was by the flavour of Big M he had on his desk the following morning, and he was always in early, Silky, no matter what night he'd had. Gary's brothers Ian and Peter said he was a passionate man who loved his job, often combining his social and work life, travelling with colleagues interstate and overseas. Gary always ensured his mum had fresh flowers at home, and he didn't speak of his work in front of her as to not upset her. Gary always had a spot saved at his local pub, where he'd knock back an ouzo and coke and his friends would gather around. Gregarious is the word, and even in his death, he still is. It's said that a large group of family and friends still gather in August to have a bite and a drink for Gary. Even his beloved Hawks play St Kilda each year for the Blue Ribbon Cup, a game which honours those who have lost their lives in the line of duty, and the best player on the ground that day is awarded the Silk Miller Medal. Good evening, I'm Peter Hitchener. Police in Victoria have launched a massive manhunt for the person who shot dead two Melbourne police officers early today. They've released a photo-fit likeness of the man they want to interview and the Chief Police Commissioner has vowed the suspect will be relentlessly pursued. Scores of police converged on the area shortly after 12.30 this morning amid reports two officers had been shot down. What we're looking at is um, the closest it's understood the two officers who were involved in an ongoing armed robbery investigation were fired upon as they approached a small dark-coloured vehicle on Cochrane's Road, Moorabbin. Sergeant Gary Silk was pronounced dead at the scene. His colleague, Senior Constable Rodney Miller, who suffered gunshot wounds to the chest, was rushed to Monash Medical Centre where he later died. This morning, the officer's car remained where it stood, organised lion searches scouring every surrounding centimetre. Chief Commissioner Neil Comrie joined family at the scene, trying to come to terms with what had happened. They've been able to witness firsthand the professionalism and the commitment of uh, the colleagues of the deceased members. This afternoon it was revealed one of the officers may have returned fire, a passing member seeing this man speaking to them just moments before the shooting. The suspect is described as being 182 centimetres tall and was last seen wearing a blue checked shirt and runners. Late today her policeman brought flowers, two single roses for two fallen comrades. Alan Ruskell, National 9 News. So the murders of Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller were front page news. State Police Minister at the time, Andre Hairmeyer, announced a half a million dollar reward for info on the murders and police got to work beginning their investigation. Lorimer. A task force codenamed Lorimer was set up to investigate the murders and it was headed by Detective Inspector Paul Sheridan, a guy who was highly touted as the best investigator in the state with a meticulous approach. And that approach was one of the big reasons Sheridan was put in the captain's chair. Fresh in the police force's minds was the acquittal of four men ten years earlier for the murders of Constables Steve Tynan and Damien Eyre, commonly known as the Wall Street shootings. This lingering failure to successfully prosecute the offenders in that case instilled a kind of laser-focused, steely resolve within the ranks of Vicpol for this one to not go the same way. 
Sheridan's 2IC would be a detective named Graham Collins. And of course, there was some crossover with the armed robbery squad and the head of the Hamada task force, Mark Butterworth. Obviously, it was thought that the Hamada robbers were the prime candidates for the murders. It wasn't a given, but given the info they had about the two offenders and the dark Hyundai, it was looking likely. Aside from a few supposed witnesses around the time of the attack, none who saw the murders directly but claimed to have seen the Hyundai afterwards, it was pretty clear to Sheridan that this was going to be a long haul, a tough slog. Forensically, one of, if not the only lead they had, was the shattered glass of the offender's vehicle at the scene. This glass would be forensically tested in a painstaking jigsaw recreation process by an expert named Peter Ross. Ross determined that the glass had come from a Korean manufactured car. Something about the thickness of the glass, I understand, and there was something in particular about the edges or the beveling of this glass. He was able to determine from that it was from a Hyundai XL. Peter Ross, a detective and a Hyundai Australia delegate, even made a trip to South Korea to the Kyumkang Glassworks to further narrow down the model of the car. Further inspection of the Hyundai manufacturing plant enabled Ross to narrow down an even tighter time frame of manufacture too, with different changes to tinting and pastes used in conjunction with the windscreen manufacturing process. Ross was able to tell the vehicle was most likely manufactured in March or April of 1997. By closely inspecting an inverted hand-drawn H on different screen batches, demister components and the different chemical makeup of the glass, Ross was able to narrow it down to the latest run of XLs, one of three, but he couldn't be sure if it was a three or five door. So while this flight to South Korea sounds great and all this technical analysis good for a chat at the pub, what did they really achieve? Well, it took the pool of Hyundais the police were looking at from just under 32,000 to 2,808. So then, the word was out to all Hyundai suppliers and glass outlets to contact the Lorimer Task Force if any inquiries were made to replace the rear windscreen of an XL. And there were a few reports trickling in, all of which had to be investigated. One such report came from Novus Windscreens in Dandenong, who reported a man had purchased a windscreen for a Hyundai XL the day after the murders. The police ran a check on the vehicle and it came up as being registered to a young woman from Narry Warren. And her name, Chloe? Nicole Debs. The father. Amongst all of their other leads trickling in, investigations into known crimes in the area and interviews of alleged witnesses and other forensic and ballistic dead ends, the police eventually got out to Narry Warren to visit Nicole Debs. Detective Illingworth was the man who spoke to Nicole's father, a guy named Bandali. Ben, for short. Apparently, he'd borrowed his daughter's car on the day or day before the windscreen smashed. Bandali said that he'd had some brass strips in the back of the car. He was a tradie, Ben, a typical knockabout, 40-something workman, a tiler. Anyhow, as he told Illingworth, he'd unloaded the car, pulled a few tubs of glue out and bang, closed the hatch down and the glass had hit the strips and blown out, filled the boot with shards so he got a new one and refitted himself. Debs was a regular suburbanite dad. There was nothing to him. He spoke casually, openly, conversed with Illingworth about the cops who'd been shot, 
He said he'd heard about it. Worked that day and then had a couple of quiet beers with the wife and kids that night. Nothing special. The guy had a small time handling charge on his record from almost 20 years earlier. He was a pipsqueak, was the view Sheridan held. His story seemed plausible. Still, Illingworth requested phone records from Bendali to back it all up. Bendali said he tracked them down for him, no problem. Meanwhile, the investigation went on, but it wouldn't be long until the Lorimer Task Force detectives got a call from another windscreen installer, Elite Windscreens, noting an all-too-familiar registration number OJI862, the Hyundai XL of Nicole Debs, a second windscreen. So this prompted a second visit to the Debs household. Turns out Nicole and her boyfriend Jason had bought another replacement from Grant Walker Parts in Bayswater and had Elite Fit at this time. The original replacement had blown out, apparently. Vandali said his attempts to glue it in using silicon, or silo as he called it, were useless. It was a good tiler, shitty glazier, apparently. Nicole backed up the story, saying she'd been driving along one day and the thing had just blown out when she went over a bump. The next time they'd shelled out $900 to have it done right. Again, Detective Illingworth pressed Bendali for his phone records and a statement, both of which he provided without seemingly much care. But the investigation went on after this, it had to, because despite the coincidences that Bendali had joked about doing a tiling job at the Silky Emperor one time and the Chinese guy there owed him a hot lunch, the windscreen of Nicole Debs's Hyundai didn't match the glass found at the crime scene. Forensics conducted, not by Peter Ross, but by another lab tech, Ross was on leave at the time, determined through the use of a grim glass refractive index measurement that upon review of the 55 samples from the Debs XL, they didn't match the samples found on Sergeant Silk at the crime scene. There was a difference in the light, the tinting, and enough for the forensic experts Kennedy Ripon to exclude it as the killer's car. So other suspects were looked into now in more detail as Bendali Debs slid off the list into no man's land. Jeffrey Dean, the car's thief from earlier in our tale, was lent on hard, but ultimately, despite him being a crook, was not this kind of crook. The Russian. Another guy who was looked into was a scary Bulgarian drug dealer named Nick the Russian Radev. Radev was a former wrestler who'd immigrated to Australia in 1980. His forte at this time was selling speed tabs. Radev was at the McDonald's that night in nearby East Bentley, hanging out the front with his mate, known locally as the Lawnmower Man. Sergeant Gary Silk had wandered into the Maccas at one point, both Radev and Silk aware of one another's presence, but operating in a kind of unspoken ignorance. Silk and Miller at this point were set up in the car park, still watching the Korean barbecue place, their original target. So, Radev came under suspicion after this, but again was ultimately cleared when phone records and testimony from one of his clients effectively cleared him. Turned out he was making a deal only five minutes after Silk and Miller had been shot and a swarm of police had descended on the area. So it didn't add up that he was the killer. Why would he shoot two cops and then hang around Warrigal Road while police brought in the canines to make a pitiful one or two hundred dollar drug deal? Radev was ultimately gunned down in 2003 amidst the Melbourne gangland wars. He was portrayed by Don Haney in the Underbelly File show about this case, so he did well there. The real Radev didn't look anything like that. He had a mug on him. 
Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder covered Radev just a few episodes back, so check that out for a deeper dive on him. But as he pertains to this case, both he and the Lawnmower Man, another alleged drug dealer but legitimate lawnmower salesman too, were both eliminated as suspects in the Silk Miller murders. The police also released a photo fit likeness of one of the attackers based on Senior Constable Sharon and Ben Dyke's visual. In the end, that likeness didn't provide any fruitful leads or end up looking like the eventual perpetrators. Other suspects were looked into as leads came up, known criminals and robbers, many named within the controversial book on this case, One Down, One Missing, by Joe Diallo and David Astle. Diallo was a detective on the Lorimer Task Force and the publication of this book was very controversial. The Chief Commissioner at the time, Simon Overland, widely panned this publication and condemned Diallo for publishing it without the backing of many of his task force colleagues. Whatever the case, the book was a wealth of information for me in researching this and last week's episode too, detailing the Hamada and Pig Out robberies. But as far as naming everyone the police looked into... I think we'll leave that to the book and for you to go dive a bit deeper on those tangents if you like. But in regard to the investigation at this point, the 12-month mark, I think stagnant would be the operative word. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lead after lead had turned into a circus merry-go-round of hitting up car dealers and glaziers alongside intent questioning of known street thugs, drug dealers, robbers and those with violent histories towards police in particular. Detective Inspector Sheridan went where he hadn't previously, to the media, even giving authorisation for the likes of seasoned crime writer John Sylvester of The Age to do an expose on the case. Sheridan hit the skids after this. He'd had enough. The seasoned, meticulous investigator wanted a redo, a clean slate back from the beginning. So the Lorimer Task Force did just that. Started back at day one, following the Lucifer lead, looking for tangible links to the Hamada robbers. Solve that case, find the killers of our true blue brothers. Investigators got to work and it wasn't long before they caught a break. Senior Constable Gallagher had asked a Lorimer Task Force investigator, Detective Senior Constable Beanland, for a hand on intel with one of these aforementioned criminals that they had caught up with from time to time, a boxer named Oliver Pascal. Pascal hadn't given up much to detectives in recent times, so they went for a visit and a chat. Turned out Pascal knew something about a sports mart robbery from a few years back, the one where the lady had held her kid to her chest and they had been taped up. Pascal dropped a name that Beanland recognised and subsequently picked out a photo from a picture lineup shortly thereafter. And the picture he chose was that of a young bloke named Jason Giller. 
Geller was known to pig out investigators, as we covered in last episode, but no tangible links had been made and no charges laid. But Beanland could feel a link and he dug deeper. He ran a CCR, both reverse and standard, which displayed all numbers called by the Giller household. Back at Lorimer HQ, Beanland ran the results through the ISIS system and the software spat out an unbelievable result. Repeated calls from the Giller household to a number that Lorimer detectives recognised all too well. The landline of the Debs family in Narry Warren. The link. So this again propelled Bendali Debs right up the list of suspects. The first port of call was retesting the glass from the Hyundai, because that's what originally excluded him. Turned out that of the original 50-odd pieces of glass taken from the crime scene, only two or three pieces had been tested against the glass from Debs Hyundai, enough to exclude him apparently via the aforementioned grim testing. But now, with this newly established link, Sheridan ordered all 53 pieces of the glass to be retested. And lo and behold, once this was done, the remnants came back as being consistent with glass on the scene and as being broken or shattered by a gunshot. So the next step was surveillance. Vic Pole got the dogs out, their surveillance crew, as they're known, and Bandali Debs was watched. It showed a man who worked tireless hours on tiling jobs, working in the city all the way out to Murlbark KFC in the Outer East. He'd start early, work all day and night. His daughters would show up on site with lunch for him, and it appeared he'd formed somewhat of a bond with his daughter Nicole's boyfriend, a guy police discovered was named Jason Roberts. But what was the Jason Giller connection? While Bandali had shot up the list of suspects for the Silk and Miller murders, what of Jason Giller? Perhaps, the theory became, Debs was the older bandit and the pig-out series was him and Giller. Giller got scared off, packed it in, and Bandali took his time getting to know a new apprentice in Jason Roberts before the Hamada robberies began. Seemed like an MO. Police needed more proof and to build a case. This was Sheridan's way. He wasn't going to let the lead the armed robbers had stumbled upon be cocked up at the homicide end. It had to be watertight. The nexus was enough to warrant phone taps on both the home phones and mobiles of the Debs family. This was October 1999 by this point. From here, the police began learning some very interesting things. Firstly, they established the connection when they heard Dorothy Debs talking with her sister, Rita Giller. Boom, connection made. Jason Giller was Bandali's nephew. The master apprentice theory had some legs. It soon became evident that Bandali had indeed replaced his nephew with his daughter's boyfriend. Bandali in his 40s and Jason Roberts, just 19, plotted and schemed and committed petty building site break-ins even stealing a bunch of frozen chickens from the Murlbark KFC he was working at one night. The next step was bugging the family home and cars. This is where things get interesting, Chloe, because we have some recordings from these listening devices to listen to, and over time, they'd reveal a lot to police about the people in question. Obviously, what they'd heard and seen from the phone taps and surveillance was enough to warrant further suspicion on Bandali Debs and to justify a warrant for the bugging. Eavesdropping. On an afternoon where the Debs family were attending a wedding, the police swooped in and bugged the family home and Nicole's Hyundai Excel. Bendali's car, 
he was driving a rust-coloured Holden station wagon by now was a harder task. The Tyler basically lived out of it during the week and over the weekend kept it in the garage. Police tried to install the bug overnight a few times but was spooked by lights turning on or some local insomniacs waking and watching TV or having a cigarette. It was too risky. So they ended up planning a sting where this undercover copper, a big Slavic bloke named Peter, posed as a construction manager. He was doing some job on Flinders Lane. This was a real job that Detective Joe Diallo's mates were working on, but Peter's role in it wasn't real. He ended up finding Deb's number in a local Berwick newspaper, called him up and got him round for a quote. During this time, the police bugged Bendali station wagon. So now we're going to hear a number of audio recordings, and these are the original police recordings, which we've EQ'd to try and make sound a bit clearer for you all. But keep in mind these are listening devices, so it's not crystal clear and will need some attention. These are from the audio companion to Wayne Howe's book, Eavesdropping on Evil, which really focuses on the bugging aspect of this operation and was a great resource for this episode. In this first recording, we hear Bandali and Jason Roberts talking about who I think was Roberts' boss at the time, and then Roberts drops the most debated line later at trial, I kill D's meaning detectives, the prosecution alleged. Meanwhile, as the Debs family reality show was just kicking off, police went undercover on Jason Giller. Since his earlier endeavours with his uncle Ben Darley, Jason had seemingly gone clean skin. The kid was into cars and didn't really have much going on socially. The only inroad to Giller was through cars. So a covert operative named Gary spent months building a relationship with Giller by getting work done on his car at Giller's workshop. Eventually, Giller loosened his lips, which inevitably led to his downfall, much of which we covered in last week's episode, so we won't rehash it now. But it did clearly link his uncle Bendali and establish a master apprentice set up the police thought Bendali was running. Back at the Debs household, things were getting quite interesting, as Bendali was overheard having a conversation with his son Joseph about robbing the Hungry Jacks where Joseph worked. Bandali offered to cut his manager's finger off when they robbed the place, something Joseph said would be good, before giving his old man details of where the safe was. Was Bandali grooming his next apprentice, his youngest son? While this was all very interesting to police, they needed more direct links to the Silk Miller case. So Sheridan had the very clever idea of throwing a few threads and red herrings out there to get chatter going inside the house. One of the first tactics used was when the police pulled over Nicole Debs and Jason Roberts in their Hyundai in what was said to be a random check, but it was anything but. 
This prompted a lot of discussion within the household. Next was Sheridan sending police around to Bendali's mother's and brother's house in Sydney, again to poke around and prompt discussion within the house, and it did just that. In this next clip, Bendali talks with his daughter Joanne fairly openly about things, and we hear the first signs of concern from him. Look, listen, Joanne. I don't want you to worry or anything. I'm telling you straight. Within the next six months, we're going to have to get rid of another two CPs. Listen. No, no, you know why? To make the investigation just spread stupidly. So Debs puts himself in the shit here, pointing out where there might be incriminating evidence at his mother's house, beneath the house stumps. Then he hatches the brilliant plan to kill another two police officers, or CPs as he calls them, in an effort to make the investigation go haywire. Two CPs have got to go down somewhere so the investigation 
In addition to this, Debs went on to suggest they might have to kill Carmel Miller and her baby boy James to make it look like something personal. This notion didn't go down as swimmingly with his daughter Joanne. And I think it's important to point out here that there seems to be a level of uh, complicity with Ben Darley and his daughters. We need to make it clear that none of the Debs girls were ever charged in connection with these crimes, and in fairness, they were young girls. We know the sort of hold that Bandali had over the likes of the two Jasons, so you just can't be sure of the intricacies of the circumstances. Two more important things happened after this. Firstly, the police caught a stroke of luck with Bandali's adopted father Malik arriving to visit him for a time. During this period, Bandali seemingly wanted to open up to someone about the events that had transpired, and it was alleged that he confessed to Malik. Here's some audio from a conversation they had where Bandali notably comments, Nobody saw nothing. No one was there. A few shots, a little thing, it's no worries. And speaks of hearing on the police radio, they had a scanner, we know from the previous episode. One is gone and we can't find the other one. No, no, those are the ones that were sitting there. When we drove in just quickly look, they seen it, so they drove behind us and drove down the street to stop us. Because we heard it on this, we heard it on that. They said, oh, 
Another second important development at this time was another Lorimer Task Force sleight of hand, and that was a media press conference where Detective Inspector Sheridan announced they'd received an anonymous call from an alleged witness to the crime. This was followed up by the release of a photo fit, not the one launched a year or so earlier, but a new one, and it looked remarkably like Jason Roberts. This prompted a lot of discussion between Bandali, Jason, Nicole and Joanne in the following clip. Basically, no, that won't ever make front page again, you can't. 
everyone's lost interest. Oh, they, they had a go on for four, five, six months. That's what I'm saying. Two years later, you know, right? Robert subsequently contacted the Lorimer Task Force and went in and saw detectives. He was getting a lot of grief in his everyday life after this photo was released from work colleagues, etc., so this didn't please Bandali too much. Still, the pair seemed confident it was all just bluster and that they were in the clear. And this was due to the clever tactics the task force continued to use, such as telling the media that the search for the Hyundai had now gone interstate again making the killers more relaxed and keeping them talking. The search, in fact, had not spread interstate at all. But Roberts was cocky in the interview with police, denied any knowledge of the murders or robberies. Later, a photo fit put together by one of the robbery victims, a lady from Sportsmart, would be a dead ringer for Jason Roberts. But for the time being, Bendali and Roberts kept on thinking they'd outsmarted the police and gotten away with murder. Bandali then bumped into a Detective Thomas at a supermarket in Berwick. In the underbelly files, it was at a service station, some of that creative licence we spoke about, but they got the gist of it right. In the time after this, Bandali found it very interesting that this CP couldn't remember much about him, seemingly, couldn't recall his work or anything. So they mustn't have been investigating him, right? Or he would know. Still, Bandali thought it might be best to find the officer and fix him up. So, that's very interesting. I'd like to know where this cunt lives. He's living very close to the shopping centre. James? What? He's living very close to the shopping centre. Probably. Yeah. And I think he went for a 
With the show having gone on long enough, Detective Inspector Sheridan authorised the arrest of Vandali Debs and Jason Roberts. He wanted the case as watertight as they could get it. Think like a defence lawyer, Sheridan consistently said. But more lives were being threatened now. How much was enough? They set up another sting using Peter, the construction worker, who recontacted Bendali, apologised for the last job falling through and said he wanted to make up for it with a big tiling job around the corner from him in Clayton. At 7am on the 24th of September 2001, Peter met Bendali and they opened the doors to the factory and walked inside, where it was dead quiet. That was, except for the crew of Special Operations Group police officers lying in wait, they swooped and arrested Bendali Debs for the murders of Gary Silk and Rodney Miller. Jason Roberts was a little easier, although he fought like a cat, it was said. They picked him up at a building site in South Morang immediately thereafter and had him in a van with cuffs on before the kid could blink. Immediately following the arrests, searches were conducted at the Debs and Roberts' homes as well as Deb's mother's house, Helga, in Sydney, and that was headed by Ron Idles. This turned up the mother load in terms of corroborating evidence. They found guns linking to the crimes and jewellery from some of the robberies. The Hyundai was seized and taken apart panel by panel. A bullet was found lodged in the vehicle, one of Rod Miller's, I believe. So Sheridan and the Lorimer Task Force announced their arrest to the media, the Silk and Miller families had been informed the night before. The task force tireless efforts had paid off in the arrests and Sheridan's watertight case was looking solid. Still, a good defence barrister would find any cracks at trial. They certainly tried. On the 13th of November 2001, Bendali Debs and Jason Roberts were committed to stand trial for the murders of Gary Silk and Rodney Miller. The trial lasted for 81 days and the jury deliberated for five days. They weren't charged for the robberies, as we said. There was insufficient evidence to do so. The defence went hard in cross-examinations, trying to tear apart the glass evidence and forensic examinations, but expert Peter Ross didn't crack and remained staunch on his findings. They also went the angle of a police cover-up, trying to say that there'd been an unaccounted police vehicle spotted in the area that night of the murders, alleging the possibility of crooked cops, essentially. But at the end of the day, none of this held any water and the jury saw through it. The case was as strong as Sheridan and prosecutors had hoped. The physical evidence combined with the wiretaps of conversations was just too overwhelming. Both Bandali Debs and Jason Roberts were inevitably convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Debs without the possibility of parole, Roberts with a 35-year minimum. As we said last episode, Debs would be later linked and convicted of two more murders, that of Christy Harty and Donna Hicks, which happened years earlier before the Silk Miller murders. For the Silk and Miller families, there was finally some peace or closure to an extent. Carmel Miller had commented that Rod and Gary had successfully apprehended the Hamada robbers, but in doing so lost their lives, while commending the police investigation thereafter. On a side note, Joseph Debs, Bendali's youngest son, was found dead from a heroin overdose in 2003. The news eventually found its way to Bendali in prison. Incidentally, on the same week, he lost his privileges. Guards discovered a cocktail of chemicals in Bendali's cell at this time, said to be the makings of a homemade bomb. Recent times. In 2013, 
Ron Idles headed up a review into Jason Roberts' conviction. In the time after, he came out and said that there, on the balance of probabilities, was one or two things present which indicated he, Roberts, wasn't present at the scene on the night of the murders. In addition to this, in late 2018, IBAC launched an inquiry probe into police statement practices pertaining to the Silk Miller murders. We won't go into it too much or name the officers involved, but the gist was that it was alleged that certain senior detectives advised other members to alter certain details within their statements at the time regarding the descriptions of the offenders, particularly the point that there were two of them. Apparently the advice was to omit certain things Rod Miller had said during his final breaths as well, and changes to these statements were unwittingly signed off by former homicide detective Charlie Bazina, who subsequently became embroiled in this when really he had nothing to do with it. So this caused a lot of upset with the public, the families and the police force, obviously. The inquiry wasn't re-examining the convictions, just the police conduct. But what it ultimately did was open the door to Jason Roberts pushing for a review of his case. He said things along the lines of him not being there, that he was afraid of Debs at the time, he is innocent, and that the altered statements didn't follow process. He also apparently had a new alibi in Nicole Debs. People have been quick to point out in opposition the number of recordings in which Roberts had conversations with Debs about killing Dees, that no one was there or had seen anything, and that people speculating at the time had the events backwards. This was alongside the other evidence, albeit not physical, that they were the Hamada robbers, and that Roberts himself was pushing for Bandali to do another job when things got too hot towards the end. There's an appeal hearing about this in February next year, so we'll have to wait and hear what transpires. Debs will apparently be transferred from a New South Wales prison to Victoria to give testimony at this hearing. There's a couple of plaques or memorials to the officers outside the Paran and St Kilda police stations. We're going to play a clip here at the end of a 7 News report that talks about the 20th anniversary of the murders in August last year. It has Jimmy Miller speaking and also Peter Silk, Gary's brother, who Carmel Miller actually moved on to marry in the years after. Current and former members of Victoria Police have joined the families of officers Gary Silk and Rod Miller to mark the 20th anniversary of their murders at Moorabbin. Today, their loved ones shared memories of the brave mates who were killed in the line of duty. Jimmy Miller was just a baby when his father Rodney was murdered. Now 20 years old, he's grown up hearing stories about his father and Gary Silk. Dad, I didn't uh, have the opportunity of getting to, to meet either of them really. So anything that I can sort of grasp from anyone that, that I can speak to is... Uh, Yeah, very special to me. Senior Constable Miller and Sergeant Silk were shot dead by armed robbers while on a stakeout in Moorabbin in 1998. Jason Roberts and Bandali Debs were convicted of their murders. On the 20th anniversary, Jimmy joined his mother, stepfather and dozens of senior police and retired officers to publicly mark the day. His mother has since remarried Peter Silk, Gary's older brother. United in grief, it's evident Peter and Jimmy share a close bond. He's got the the fierce determination that his father had and um, 
a bloody good bloke. But the family's quest to move forward has been halted. The Supreme Court has been asked to examine new evidence in the case as Roberts maintains his innocence from behind bars. We still have faith that uh, justice will prevail. Despite recent developments, today's service was focused squarely on how the men lived, not how they died. Their family members also gathered here at the scene in the early hours of this morning for their own private memorial. Since day dot, really, having the silks come in with us, I, I look at them as, as close as I look at any of my family now. Emily Angwin, 7 News. So that's it, Chloe. That's the tale of the Silk Miller police murders and the investigation that nabbed the perpetrators thereafter. Yeah, wow. What amazing police work in this case. The level of problem solving and thinking on your feet that happened was truly awesome. It seemed like they had to think of a workaround to not be exposed while doing such covert work or a way to push harder for evidence at almost every turn. I'm sure this is something police do regularly, but to see it levelled out like this in this case that we've just talked about and to have insight into something like how the wiretaps are set up left me in absolute awe. Like I said last week, the fact that there was seemingly no reason for these murders is so scary. The sheer disregard for human life is disgusting to me. I don't want to believe it, but no matter what angle you look at it from, it seemed like these men just came in contact with two of the wrong people. Like, they were up for robbing someone, but when presented with the opportunity to kill, that just seemed like the right kind of thrill. Even saying that makes me feel a bit ill. And I don't really have anything else to add to this other than I hope we did this case justice and to rest in peace to Gary Silk and Rod Miller. Our thoughts go out to your family and your colleagues. Sean, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd probably echo that last sentiment there too, Chloe. There's not much for me to add in terms of the case. My thoughts are probably fairly evident. It struck me of how sort of ordinary suburban dad Bandali Debs was. That really surprised me. I think we should mention the Underbelly File show on this case too. We've mentioned it a couple of times this week and last. They did a really good job of it, I thought. So would recommend uh, everyone takes a look at that. Interested to see what happens with this appeal of Jason Roberts, but uh, by the same token, I wished it uh, you know, was sort of done with so the families didn't have to keep uh, reliving it in the media. Uh, that's about it from me. Yeah. And just to shake that off a bit, let's get into our happy thoughts. Absolutely. You want to go first? I will go through. Actually, I've got the uh, a bit of a Kickstarter vibe again with uh-huh. the Kickstarter stuff. Yeah. You're all over it. All over it. So I've got a... Um, Backed a new cast iron skillet this week. <laughs> That's Sound- not what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good. Shit hot. And yeah. it's been, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So I bought a couple of those. But like anything Kickstarter, you've got to wait for it. It's all yeah. funded. So we yep. know it's going ahead. Um, but these are really cool. They're called a prepped skillet. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to roll around in maybe March next year. So oh, you really have to wait. They really have to wait, yeah, but pretty excited about that. That's good, and it's kind of good because you paid for it so long before that it will be like a present and you won't remember that it costs something. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. It will be like that. And it's just that feeling of being at the ground floor or yeah. something so cool. And so know. well made. Yeah. Uh, so mine is that I've just gotten into audiobooks and my first purchase is the Good Cop by Justine Ford about everyone's favourite Ron Idols. Oh, well, lucky we could, we featured him in the yeah. case a little bit at the end there. That's, yeah, of course. Yeah. He pops up always. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping this will help me not add to my pile of 10 books or so that I want to read that I just don't have time to do because you can listen to audiobooks in cars. Yeah. I mean, 
definitely listen to our podcast, but also when you're not, audiobooks are really cool. <laughs> yeah. Or you can listen to uh, Audible's No Gangsters in Paradise, which they've also advertised with us recently. So we'll just throw that in. <laughs> True. Good plug. Um, <laughs> if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more to come. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. And speaking of uh, Patreon, we have our monthly Patreon Blue Label episode next week. Yes. So we'll do our best, uh, but may not be on the main feed. We might, but may not. It's been a big few weeks with this two-parter and uh, Mr. Stinky before that, so we'll see how we go. Yes. Thank you all very much again for listening. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll catch you all next time. See you soon. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.